Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Last time we were together, we began a conversation about the preservation of Scripture and why the preservation issue sits at the center of the King James-only perspective. Today, we will be addressing the external evidence or the historical record that supports that the King James is the unique result of a divinely superintended translation process that sets it apart from all other translations. With that said, uh, I'd like to introduce to you Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church and professor of the Manuscript Evidence course. Alan, welcome. Yes, good to be here. And we are hot in the middle of this conversation about the King James, and we talk specifically about the doctrine of preservation. If you don't mind summarizing the doctrine of preservation and then connecting that to the importance and the significance of translation itself. Right. So we ended last time kind of recognizing a chain, a link, links conforming and making up a chain. Right. Revelation, God manifested himself. Inspiration, that manifestation coming down in words, so verbally, actually mm -hmm. audible words. Mm -hmm. In scripturation, those words being made graphic and visible in writing. Transmission, that word being copied for others. Preservation, those copies being providentially protected until you can get all the way to translation, preserved copies brought into our language. And then I would end with illumination, the Spirit giving you understanding out of the Word of God in that translation. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's start this particular episode maybe at the place where no one ever wants to start. If it were necessary for us to have the originals, we would have. Hmm. And that's the bottom line. If it were necessary for us to have the original manuscripts, well, then we would have those. So the, the question is not really whether any translation is inspired. The question is whether or not it is scripture. Mm -hmm. Do we have scripture? Right. Do I have, if as someone who speaks English, and um, for those who might speak it exclusively, the only language they know, mm -hmm. then do they have scripture in their language? The term scripture is not limited in the Bible to the original manuscripts or even to the original language, because Paul quotes the Old Testament Hebrew in Greek mm -hmm. and calls that Scripture. Yeah. So let me, let me give what I think is a more biblically workable defini definition of Scripture. Okay. Scripture is what was written and then recognized as authoritative. And that has to be the definition. It can't just be what was originally written out of the mouth of the prophet or the apostle. Because Paul said Timothy had scripture, and he was talking about the Old Testament. 
Mm -hmm. So scripture is what was written and then recognized as authoritative by the priesthood of believers. And if inspiration only took place at the point where the pen touched the parchment, only in the original autographs, you don't have anything that is inspired. To that point, the direction that the conversation is going is that we're trying to get to a place where our assumptions as it concerns revelation, inspiration, et cetera, et cetera, puts us in a position where we can stand firmly on the idea that the King James Version of the Bible is the, the manifestation of all those things working themselves out into this common tongue. And I think that's a very difficult idea for a lot of people. Uh, and they have lots of peripheral, uh, you know, critical peripheral ideas that they impose upon this. And, and I hope that we can walk through some of that today. One of the very first things that you often hear a person say when, when they're, this conversation comes up where was the word of God specifically? Can we know that it existed prior to this specific translation? Right. So all of those type questions would seek to get us to not stand firmly on the idea of biblical authority. Sometimes I think to ask, where was, where was the Bible before 1611? Well, that's kind of like asking, where was humanity before the Tower of Babel? Well, it, it was right there. I mean, Adam started existing when God created him. Adam started existing when God breathed into him the breath of life. The Bible started existing when inspired words were written down. And it existed in English in every translation up to and through the, the King James Bible. You know, there's this story in the Old Testament about Jonathan and leading Israel into battle. And mm -hmm. Saul makes this rash vow. He says, look, no one gets to eat till we finish these people off. Right. And then the whole army is fainting. Well, word did not get to Jonathan. And honey was dripping. I mean, they went through this wood, and honey's just dripping down, and he stuck, the, you know, he kept going, but he stuck the end, the, end, the end of his staff, and he took some of the honey, and his Providence. eyes were enlightened. Yes. And, um, you know, actually, some of the prior translations record accurately, according to Hebrew, the honey was traveling. It's traveling with them. I mean, I, I'm, that's what is, that is what we are observing mm -hmm. now when we see... Where was the Bible before 1611? Well, just, just watch. The honey is traveling. You can see evidence in the outcomes that surround each of these successive translations in English, and we follow that as evidence to God's providential hand. Right. And evidence in the outcomes, I think, is the operative phrase. Mm -hmm. And this is an area in the manuscript evidence that you do, class that you spend a lot of time on. Obviously, we can't do that today. But maybe you can take our hand and trace it along the movement of God's work in translation through the, through the English language. Right. So consider this. Wycliffe and his Lollards produced the first complete Bible in Middle English, not in Middle Earth, but in Middle English, 
1382. Even though, and that was the Bible, that was the English Bible, even though it was a translation of the Latin Vulgate, the Bible was right there. And because they believed it, and they preached it authoritatively as imperfect in the sense of incompleted as it may have been. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned in the last episode, how when the corruption came in, it wasn't to really add to add stories to it. They wrote their own books from that so they could get the royalties, but it was to take out of it certain things that might challenge the gnosis and the knowledge and the doctrine they wanted to get across. So, as incomplete as it may have been, because mm -hmm. they preached it authoritatively, Wycliffe and his Lollards were the morning star of the Reformation. Mm. So it started there. And so where was the Bible before 1611? Well, that's where it was. So through a providential process of preservation, after it was not until even after that Point. So this was a morning star of a lot of things, mm -hmm. Wycliffe was, not right. just of the Reformation. I think lesser so in importance was he a morning star of the Reformation than he was a morning star of Bible translation. Mm. So it was the morning star, and then, then the Greek and the Hebrew text went through a providential process of preservation so that a standard Greek text and Hebrew text was produced from which new Bible translations could be made into all the languages of Europe during the Reformation. So in 1516, Erasmus publishes a Greek New Testament. In 1517, the next year, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses, mm -hmm. uh, debate topics, to the Wittenberg door. In 1569, the first edition of the complete Spanish Bible was translated by Reina and revised in 1602 by Valera. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a King James in English and there's a Queen Valera in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Who knew? <laughs> so the Reformation, in addition to a rediscovery, you might say, of the doctrine of justification by faith, mm -hmm. which is what the Reformation is kind of known for, uh, it also led to a rediscovery of biblical preservation so that that revelation could go through translation and give a new generation God's inspiration. Love it. So it was a rediscovery of, of the fact that God had preserved his word. Mm -hmm. And these men who were now saved, now born again, based on a biblical doctrine of justification, right. begin saying, okay, we have a really unique opportunity here with the printing press. This is new technology. Mm -hmm. How can we use that? Let's take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. So so what we get down to is we can see the evidence and the alternatives. And the alternatives, every one of them, are corrupt. I mean, the alternatives are corrupt men, 
Jesuits, uh, popes, and others who would not even allow the Bible to be put into any other language than the stale, stagnant Latin mm-hmm. of the Mass, uh, corrupt philosophy, corrupt text, corrupt process, corrupt result. The evidence is simply watch the honey. Mm-hmm. Okay, follow the honey. Watch God's hand in history. And I would say there, are, you know, there are not two hundred choices. Like which translation? This, 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 this. Two hundred choices. There's really only two. There are really only two main sources: mm-hmm. a God-preserved text and a man-made one, and a a God-initiated, superintended translation. And ones that, from philosophy to text to publication, are uh, the most generous thing that can be said, I think, is that they are man-made. So the King James Bible comes from one source. No other modern translation comes from that same source. So all modern English translations automatically come from a different text, than the King James Bible, and that has happened just within the last 150 years. Yeah, and so I want to make sure that our listeners fully understand what it is that you're saying, and that is that the King James not only is traceable throughout history, but that traceability has everything to do with the fact that it is sourced in a line of texts that can be seen from the early believers in the first and second century that recognize that this is the group of texts that we're following. And um, the other modern translations incorporate texts that were absent and popped up, uh, that have men's philosophy all over them, that uh, were not accepted by early believers. In fact, they were in some cases completely rejected. We have evidence of that. But these things have been incorporated as we see scripture from an evolutionary perspective, a modernist perspective. The idea, the biblical idea of biblical authority Mm -hmm. is seen throughout all of history. And the hand of God and the providential process of preserving for humanity, and even in their various languages, scripture which is biblically authoritative, is seen in our own English translation in terms of the King James. So you start off with Wycliffe, and okay, you know, biblical authority resided in what God really had preserved in the Masoretic Hebrew text and the, the Greek received text. He didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. All he had was what Jerome had taken of those two and put into Latin. Right. And Jerome's Greek uh, part, he got from the wrong, what we would say, the wrong texts. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's, it's kind of like even from the wrong text. But that's all he had. That's okay. That's the honey is beginning to move. Yeah. So it's just begin- beginning to, it's, tried in a furnace of earth. Mm-hmm. It's just beginning to come up through the ground. Yeah. So there's still a lot of muck attached to it. And tried in the furnace of earth means you're in a process. So seven times this is done. Yeah. This is refining stage So it's one. a process of 
taking off the dross. Yeah. So when it comes to us in English, you can see exactly what God is doing. And part of the evidence too, and I've heard you talk about this, is that the intent was to get the word of God into the hands of common people, which is critical. So it's not an elitist thing. It's we can we can know that God is in it because God has always wanted his word to be for common man. And, yes. and Wycliffe kicked that off. So we had the word of a common Bible for common people in a common language. Mm-hmm. And for 280 years, that's all there was. Mm-hmm. So either it's the word of God or it's not in English. Mm-hmm. And so why are we in the dilemma that we're in right now? Not because people want the word of God in a common language for common people. It is because of money and Bible publishing yeah. tied to money. So when you can come up with your own text, which then demands a new translation, and you have the powerhouse of the Philadelphian age church that you're, you know, kind of kind of coming on the end of. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a lot of money involved in that because Christians are sheep. And, and they are gullible. Mm. And sometimes that's their intent and motive, and sometimes that's just the evidence and the outcome. Mm-hmm. We have a Bible which was given to us by people who believed that God gave his word and then preserved it, preaching a born-again faith. I mean, John Wycliffe, despite the fact that he was a priest of what we would call the Catholic Church, it was the only church right. that existed at that time. Uh, outside of groups like ours that we would say were Baptists that nobody had ever given the name Baptist to yet, so they weren't really Baptists. Mm -hmm. But whatever they were, they believed the same as John Wycliffe, and he believed the same as us in terms of the Lord's Supper and what it pictured and what it did and did not do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then 70 years later, in 1453, in the city of of Constantinople, falls to the Muslims— And Byzantine believers are forced to escape for their life to the West. And because they bring their Greek and their Hebrew manuscripts with them, a renaissance of learning occurs Mm. uh, and uh, fuels the renaissance in uh, all other areas. So two years later, I mean, two years later, Printing press is fully operational. The Greek New Testament starts to be printed and published and sold. Now, you need to remember they didn't have iPads. Right. And they didn't have iPhones. And since Netflix was not yet invented, then they had to learn Hebrew and Greek as their graphic entertainment. And and their graphic hobby, right? So you did you had that Gutenberg and chill, yeah, if you will Gutenberg and ch- chill. <laughs> so through a providential process of preservation, standard Hebrew and Greek texts start being produced. Mm-hmm. Now you cannot trace the modern eclectic Greek text. Back to any type of process like this, where it looks so phenomenal that just at the moment 
that Wycliffe is a morning star for the Reformation and a morning star for Bible translation. Mm-hmm. Then at the same moment, the printing press gets invented. Then at the same moment, Constantinople falls. So at that same moment, the Greek manuscripts are coming along with the Hebrew text, which was already preserved among the Jews. Yeah. I mean, that is... It's a supernatural convergence. It is a supernatural convergence so that in 1516, Erasmus publishes his first Greek New Testament in 1517, one year later. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther nails his theses to the Wittenberg door. It, uh, he, he starts translating Erasmus's Greek text into German. Same thing happens in Spanish. Same thing happens in, in uh, Italian. 1526, William Tyndale does the thing. Yes, he, he does. makes um, a more modern English Bible than the Middle English Bible of of John Wycliffe. Mm-hmm. And even though they martyred him before he got it completed, ten years after that, in 1535, Cromwell and Cramner get together with Coverdale to take Tyndale's Bible, add the missing parts by translating from Martin Luther's German Bible, and booyah, now you got Coverdale's Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and it, was, it was the Bible. Now, why do I say that was the Bible? You know, the question is, well, what, where was the Bible before 1611? Right. Why is that the Bible? Because it's what God made available. Well, why are these other Bibles not Bibles? Because it's not God making them available. Mm-hmm. And that's just bottom line. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sorts it out real fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll get a, you know, I'm sure we'll get in some reasons why the modern versions are not Bibles God is making available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the next episode, we'll hit that. But all of these prior versions to the King James were still the Bible because it was what God was making available. So now, no more decades in between. God goes full auto. Right. God starts going full auto. And John Rogers produces another printed revision of Tyndale called Matthew's Bible in 1537. That was only two years later. And then Cranmer puts together the Great Bible in 1539. Great because it was big. It was designed as a pulpit Bible for every single church in the realm. And then the English reformers who were exiled under Queen Mary, they had to flee for their lives. And they, so they go to hang out with John Calvin in Geneva. Right. They finally, tra- they finally, they are the ones who finally trans- every- translate everything from the Hebrew Masoretic text, which was in print by then, and from the Greek Textus Receptus, which was in print at that time. They added ch- chapter divisions. They added verse divisions. They added italic words. They added 2,700 alternate readings in the New Testament alone to say, you know, that could be translated this way, or literally that word means this. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the Bishop's Bible comes out in 1568. And now here's a little known fact. Okay. Here, here's trivia. This, this, is the, uh, this is the question for the quiz. 
okay. to see if you actually listen to the podcast. Okay. The uh, Bishop's Bible is of 1602, its last edition, Bishop's Bible of 1602, is more different from its first edition, the Bishop's Bible of 1568, than the King James Version is from the Bishop's Bible of 1602. Now, that's interesting. That's the way the honey flowed. Wow. So between 1568 and 1602, they had made most all the changes. They'd made more changes than they made between 1602 and the King James, mm -hmm. 1611. So, I mean, the heavy lifting had been done. Uh, and and um, much of it under Queen Elizabeth. I think we owe more to our English Bible, to Queen Elizabeth, certainly than we do to King King James. That's that's a really interesting thought. And so, like you know, most of the dross you're you know comparing it to dross that's being lifted at, through the refining process. Most of that dross had been addressed. I mean, certainly between Tyndale and the Bishop's Bible, um, we have about you know a hundred years of time where. The, the necessary changes were being made in the refining process. And it was a furnace. Mm -hmm. If you look historically at what was happening at the time, John Rogers ends up being burned at the stake mm -hmm. by bloody Queen Mary, bloody Mary, mm -hmm. um, and others were killed, uh, Cranmer and Coverdale and others. Yeah. So um, so it was it was a furnace, and it was a furnace of earth. It wasn't a furnace in heaven. Right. Which points further to the opposition that you're talking about. The reason this is contentious is because there is an alternate text, right? And that's that's clearly seen uh, as the word of God becomes more common and becomes more mass-produced and more available to man. Uh, as that increases, the contention, Satan's work, is is turning up. The furnace is getting hotter. Yes. And for us, as we stand here and look at it and evaluate it mm -hmm. and try and put it together for ourselves so that we know we have a rock to stand on, the thing we don't, we, sometimes we simply just don't like what the way God does things because it's not the way we would do it. Mm. We would give a manuscript from outer space. Right. It would be hermetically sealed. Plop down it, on all of it, our laps. Yes, it would be just like uh, the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones. If you messed with it, it was going to melt your face off. It melt off your <laughs> face. So it would be, and, and God, God doesn't do that. Right. And God allowed Jehudai to take his penknife and cut up the Word of God and burn it on the in the fire. Mm -hmm. And okay, you know, God. Um, you know, we we need to separate perhaps God's providence from God's sovereignty. Certainly God is sovereign. But the nature of his sovereignty as God is that he does not impinge upon human free will. Right. That means his providence ends up working through a furnace of earth, not a furnace of ceramic mm -hmm. or I don't I, you know whatever right. iron or yeah. whatever whatever things we think a furnace should be made of. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it it ends up a dirty process, and because it's a dirty process, we want to discount the idea that God was involved in it. 
because we can see too much of the sausage being made. <laughs> and and yes, we like the sausage and it you know it tastes really good, but it but once we see how once we get back, we look at how God made it when we tend to say no, I can that can't be right. Mm. That can't be of God. And yet that's the way that's the same way God did. Yeah. Okay, how did God create Adam? Yeah, it was a pretty messy process. It was it was a messy process. Yeah. He scrunched up a bunch of mud and just kind of said, here. Now, that's not what he did with Eve. He took his time with Eve. Sure. And Thank, he used thankfully. some other materials. But what you're saying is so important because providence is personal. And because people are messy, God is willing to get down in the mess and, and work despite us. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. I'm Craig Warner. I'm the kids pastor at First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia, Ohio, and a recent graduate of the Living Faith Bible Institute. LFBI was a great chance for me to grow, to learn, to continue my education without having to take time away from my family or my own ministry. In fact, being able to take classes at my own pace ultimately allowed me to be more effective in my ministry. I can't tell you how invaluable it is for LFBI to be structured in such a way that you're encouraged to implement what you learn in ministry and not just sit on the information for yourself. It was a great experience to hear from a variety of instructors uh, from other ministries and parts of the country in tandem with serving my local church. Through LFBI, I received a library of resources that I'll be able to reference for the rest of my life. It was curated by the experience and the countless hours of study put in by the instructors. I can't tell you how grateful I am for all those that invested in and equipped me for the work of the Lord. In addition to the information and resources, I was able to develop relationships with so many of the students and the instructors that have impacted my life in the way that I view ministry. There was a lot of info to retain, and there's still a lot that I don't know, but perhaps the greatest takeaway from LFBI is the confidence to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture and rightly divide the word of truth so that I can be certain of what God says for myself. This is an approach to the Bible that will stay with me for the rest of my life. So if anyone's interested in learning what God's word has to say, I'd encourage you to sign up for the Living Faith Bible Institute. To enroll for classes, visit lfbi.org. To support LFBI, please visit lfbi.org slash support. When you stop and think about it, here's the Father who is God and Jesus who is God. And Jesus who is God because our sin is put on him, because he became sin for us. There is that moment on the cross that Jesus looks back up in the face of the Father and says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yeah, I don't see How you. does the Father turn his back on the Son, who is the, quote, second member of the Trinity? I mean, that's a crack. But that is what had to be done for our salvation. So I think when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was real. It was real. He, he says to the, the, the disciples, you need to watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Mm -hmm. can, can you guys not stay up and watch me? Watch me. Watch me pray. Watch and pray with me. 
because this is serious stuff. You don't understand what's happening here. Mm -hmm. I'm about to go back over to that rock, bow my knees, and look up. And as the son who has been in the bosom of the father since eternity, I'm about to look up in his face and ask him and, and just plead with him and just say, if there's any other way, and just say, if thou wilt, take this cup from me. On that hangs everything. Right. On that hangs you and me sitting here right, right now. Right. Uh, on that hangs heaven and hell. On that hangs God's entire pur purpose for eternity. Um, and, it was, and it was just that serious. And he prayed three times and prayed through. And it was not God's will. And, you know, at the bottom line, the son spoke to the father saying, nevertheless, not as I will. Because you know, how do you explain that? How does, how does the son's will go contrary to the father's? Mm -hmm. But at that moment, it did. And yet, he was still God. Yeah. So, so that's too messy for us. We can't logically make sense of it. Mm. And because of that, we want to reject it. And same thing is true of Scripture. Same thing is true of biblical authority. Same thing is true of what we're talking about right now with regard to the Word of God in the English language. So again, here's, here's another reason people think they can get away with rejecting biblical authority in a King James Bible. It is because of the messy process involving Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. Henry VIII's Catholic wife gives him a daughter named Mary in 1516, but no son. I mean, at that time, the mindset is I got to have a, an heir and a spare. Mm -hmm. I need sons out of this. And, and the king loved his queen, uh, but she's now past childbearing age. And so Henry, Henry asks, does what any monarch of the day did he asked the Pope to annul his marriage to her so he could marry a woman that would produce him a male heir. And that was simply standard operating procedure. Uh, but that wouldn't work because for the Pope right then, because his queen's brother was King of Spain. Mm -hmm. And King of Spain is kind of holding the Pope hostage. Yeah, that was a big deal. The Catholic Church and, and Spain were in cahoots quite yeah. closely. So that's a big, hairy deal. Mm -hmm. So in 15, so that's 1516 that the future Queen Mary is born, Catholic. Right. right. 1526, King Henry VIII starts, a, a, you know, he's opposed to the Protestants. He's opposed to Reformation doctrine. He uh, has the... English New Testament, which had been produced by William Tyndale, banned. Mm -hmm. But then as Tyndale was being strangled at the stake, right. having, having been betrayed, um, the last words out of Tyndale's mouth are these gracious, these gracious words, Dear God, open the King of England's eyes. Uh, so God answered his prayer and 
Henry appoints a pro now because of this issue of trying to get a male heir. Right. He appoints a Protestant prime minister named Thomas Cromwell in 1532. In 1533, he installs a Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury to rule all the bishops and all the churches in England. His name was Thomas Cranmer. Mm -hmm. Cromwell got the king's annulment through the by detaching England's church from the Pope. And then Cranmer rewrote the prayer book and the liturgy that they used in their churches. So, you know, everything degrades over time in a sense. So we look at the Book of Common Prayer that the Anglicans or the Episcopalians use. And as Baptists, we tend to look down on that. It's just a bunch of prepared prayers and right. whatever. But at the time, Cranmer took the liturgy the churches were using and he removed he siphoned all the superstition out. Yeah. And he replaced it with Protestant doctrine. And in effect, he gives every church discipleship lessons. Mm. Now, because most of the priests were so ignorant about preaching, he produces a book of sermons that they can use to preach from. And with the Book of Common Prayer, it's basically basically discipleship lessons on the truth. Wow. So that's the original Book of Common Prayer he comes up with. So, so you know, Henry gets a new wife. Well, she gives him another daughter yeah. that he names Elizabeth. Well, all that messy thing is going on. Coverdale revises Tyndale's incomplete Bible, comes out with the first complete printed Bible in English in 1535, Coverdale Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, Henry executes his second wife, and then his third wife finally gives him the future King of England, Edward VI, in 1537. While all of that is going on, John Rogers adds to Tyndale's Bible, revises Coverdale's Bible, prints it under the pen name Thomas Matthew so as to protect his own identity because he was a close friend of William Tyndale who had been, remember, condemned by the King of England mm -hmm. and killed by the Pope because he translated the Bible into English. So then the complete Matthew's Bible comes out, 1537. 1539, Thomas Cramner, Cranmer hires Miles Coverdale to revise Coverdale's own Bible. They published it as the Great Bible uh, since it's printed uh, so large, so big, so it could be, you know, one had in every church. And sometimes we, you know, we talk about, here's another uh, quiz question to see if you listen to the podcast. We sometimes talk about unchaining the Bible and, and the, how the Bible was chained to pulpits. Well, at that moment with that Bible, it was chained to pulpits mm -hmm. so that it couldn't be stolen, so that the people who discussed it had to do within the uh, had to do it within the hearing of the pastors, the priests, so that they wouldn't get into fights with each other, so that someone could stand there and read it to all the illiterate people, so that actually the chaining the 
Bible to the pulpit was kind of a good thing. Yeah. Not a bad thing at that period of time. Interesting. Then in, okay, it's messy. 1540, Cromwell is executed. 1545, the Catholic Church meets and condemns all Protestant doctrine. And this is with Bloody Mary in, in rule at this point, right? Uh, well, she doesn't quite get there yet, but they're ratcheting up, ratcheting okay. up on King Henry because mm -hmm. they're going to excommunicate him and the entire realm. Mm. And so 1546, Martin Luther dies. Finally, 1547, Henry VIII dies and Edward VI comes to the front throne. He's a Protestant. The Reformation made its greatest headway in England uh, during his six years of reign. He was young. He was sick. He dies. He dies early. Uh, but what? But okay. What does that mean to say Protestant doctrine made its greatest headway? Well, priests were now allowed to marry. That's kind of a big deal. Images were removed from the churches, statues and pictures and images that they worshipped. Icons yeah. taken out. Monasteries were closed and confiscated. So the Reformation's now rolling in England. It's jumping off so much so that in 1547, Cranmer publishes a book of sermons so that the English clergy have something to preach. And since Cranmer wanted the preaching to be in English and not in Latin, he gave reform to the liturgy, comes out with a book of common prayer in 1549. And, um, you know, that now they've... I mean, they're in a good spot. They're in a really good place. The devil's not going to like that. So the situation, you know, the parliament seals uh, an act of uniformity mm -hmm. under, uh, eventually after Edward dies under Queen Elizabeth. So now, 1553, the communion service has to be performed in English, not in Latin. The entire book of Psalms had to be read through every month. Uh, the whole church service had to be in the common language of the people. Gone are the veneration of the saints and prayers for the dead. Abolished are all the medieval missals and manuals and processionals. Um, and now, finally, the English Bible is enthroned. So restrictions removed from English translations and the great Bible went through seven editions. Matthew's Bible goes through three. Covers Dale's Bible goes through two. But you know that thing about that Tyndale New Testament? I mean, it went through 35 printings. Wow. They were kind of stuck on that. So England is officially Protestant, but it still has a Catholic church structure. So when, it, when Edward dies at the age of 15... In 1553, the Reformation's still not complete. His sister, Queen Mary, comes to the throne. She is dead set and determined. She's going to return England to Catholicism once again. In 1554, she marries King Philip II of Spain against all the wishes of her, both her advisors and her subjects. Um, she restores the Catholic creed. She revives... The laws against Lollards. So it's kind of like what happens in America at the change of administrations. Mm -hmm. You know, one president sets up these policies and the other one gets in and, you know, changes them all and changes it back. Okay, right. well, that, that's what happened here. He, she tries to do a, an, a mass enforcement of the realm. 
to the to Catholicism. And so they had uh, over 300 people burned at the stake wow. during her short reign. John Rogers, first one to be killed in February 1555. Now, we think that beheading somebody with a six-inch knife is, is kind of a bad thing, you know, like the yeah. ISIS or Islamists. And, uh, that sounds terrible. In his case, his wife was watching with their little six-month baby at her breast. And he prayed for his executioners. And as if he felt no pain, he washed his hands in the flames and right in front of him. 1556, in a ceremony of meticulous humiliation, Thomas Cranmer, archbishop, was denigrated from his office so that the state could kill him. And he had watched others be martyred, and now they finally got around to him. And they, you know, they told him, look, we'll let you live if you just recant. Now, so uh, he faltered. He did recant. But Mary was out, to blo- out for blood, so she condemned him anyway. Um, and he, he ran. He ran out of the church courthouse to the stake. He ran to the stake. And the first thing he put in his flames was the hand that had signed his recantation. Mm. Queen Mary dies in 1558. Her Protestant sister, Elizabeth, comes to the throne. While all this is happening, 1560, Geneva Bible being published by Protestant English exiles in, in John Calvin's Geneva. And so finally, by finally at that moment, the English Bible, for the first time, gets numbered verses and numbered chapters and italicized words of the words that were not actually in Hebrew or Greek but have to be there in English. There's a new Protestant creed for the Anglican Church called the 39 Articles, adopted in 1563. Uh, That was the same year John Fox wrote his book of martyrs, Mm. where he recorded for posterity what had happened under Queen Mary. Because the Geneva Bible was so popular, and yet its marginal notes were so anti-monarchy. Then in 1568, the church produced a new revision of the English Bible called the Bishop's Bible. So they took different sections of the Bible, assigned it to bishops, and had them translate it. Now, that was actually Cranmer's idea. And, uh, you know, then Cromwell gets Coverdale to come up with the Bible and ask Cranmer what he thinks about that. And Cranmer says, you know, I, I try to get the bishops to do this, but it, they won't get done until a day before doomsday. So have the king approve this and send it out. <laughs> right. Uh, well, finally, the bishops did. You know, get something together in 1568, and it, it wasn't as popular as the Geneva Bible. So you have the Bishop's Bible being used in the church and the Geneva Bible being used at home. And so when Queen Elizabeth dies, the Puritans in the Church of England petition the new King James for a, another new translation to be made. And in 1604, he he agrees. And that is the messy process. 
Yeah. And yet you can see how it's a battle between the devil and God. But then that was Jeremiah 36. Mm-hmm. That was a battle between the devil and God. And God always wins, but it's a messy process. Uh, it is a trial of our faith to get there. So we've got to start with the right assumptions, stick with them through the process, and then we come out at the right end. Alan, um, man, that's that's good. I mean, that's a fantastic history lesson, and that really does help us kind of understand just how much the believers went through in order to fight for God's exact words. And so now, you know, we have a King James Bible that we personally put our trust in as the authoritative inerrant word of God that made its way through that refining. Can you maybe just in closing contrast that against the multiplicity of translations that we have in our world today? And just briefly, because this is what we're going to cover in the next episode, but just summarize briefly how it is that we got to the place we're at, where we have the King James and then all those that kind of um, fly in the face of it. Right. So we've got the evidence. What are the alternatives? Mm-hmm. Well, there is an ideology to our theology. Um, so number one, there are two seeds. Okay, there are always two seeds. Proverbs 16, verse 25. There are two seeds. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So you have two seeds that are outwardly similar, but they produce different fruits, different results. Mm-hmm. So, so two seeds, what God's word says and what man's way says. That's why it's important that we start at the right spot, because if we do not start at this, you know, with the same assumptions, we will reach different conclusions, even looking at the same evidence. Right. So there are two seeds. God's word says man's way in thinking about it says something differently. Because there are two seeds, they produced two different texts. So there are two sources, two separate families or lines of Bibles. And the textual critics themselves refer to it just that way. Right. There are two lines of Bibles. They say that. And they talk about it like that. And these lines are very different when you consider the doctrine of inspiration and preservation and the Word of God itself. All of that is at stake. Mm-hmm. It is all at stake, depending on how you view these two lines of Bibles, these two texts. So these two lines represent two, in not only just two different texts, they represent two entirely different approaches to the Bible, two philosophies of inspiration, two different methods of translation. On the one hand, you have a Bible given to us by people who believed God gave his word and then preserved it. And then, you know, and that can be said regardless of whether they were Puritan or Anglican translators. Mm -hmm. They believed it. That's true. And they believe God preserved it. Right. I mean, it was the Catholics who had a ban on the Bible by that point. Mm -hmm. 
um, not not the Anglicans of uh, the Church of England. On the other side, you have a Bible that is a product of human opinion and rationalization and human scholarship, which is always rooted in skepticism, in this interrogation of the truth and, you know, critical thinking in that sense. So, you know, one side understood there was a satanic attack on Scripture. The other one is willingly ignorant of that or oblivious to it, but will not admit any supernatural. So it wasn't supernaturally given. But and even if it was, there's no supernatural attack. It is, it is all naturalistic. Mm. So next step, two ways. Two families of manuscripts or lines of Bibles produce two New Testament Greek texts received and eclectic. Mm. And that is what happens when manuscripts collide. It is a tale of two cities, Antioch and from Antioch, the East, the Byzantine Empire, came texts which were preserved and Alexandria, and in Alexandria, Egypt, the West, Western text, or Caesarean text, the texts are corrupted. So those two families produce two texts which lead us to two lines of Bibles, Reformed and Revised. Okay, King James Version stands in that line of Reformation Bible translations, and then the process stops. And for 280 years, God says, I'm good. Bros, I'm good. Right. <laughs> I mean, we're done. Yeah. This is it. Uh, okay. That's God's, that's God's words in English. Mm-hmm. When the process starts back up, it is, it is not a reformed. It is revised. It is a... Revised Greek text based on naturalistic assumptions to lead us to a revised translation based on naturalistic philosophy and translating theory to get us down to what we have today. And the utilization of those corrupted texts. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The text that they come up with that they have a copyright on that there is still big money in today. Yeah, they're just as Gnostic as they were when they were written. Yes, and it is the same style of Gnosticism as what what you see on anybody's you know monetized YouTube channel. Yep, and has a Patreon account mm-hmm. uh, because they're getting money in for what they put out. Um, they really don't care within their within their particular show whether what they say is true as long as it's popular. Mm-hmm. So if it's popular, it brings in the money. Right. There is, they are less concerned about whether it is true because they know there are people out there who believe anything. Mm-hmm. And, well, I don't know which it, which it is anyway, so why don't, it, you know, it might as well be this. Mm-hmm. So you have some of, the, some of those scholarly individuals who put together that eclectic text uh, Bruce Metzger says that textual criticism is an art as well as a science. 
because it is all based on probabilities. Hmm. Well, there you go. Hmm. Khakis down again, Captain Underpants. <laughs> but if textual criticism is an art as well as a science, then there is no objective, externally verifiable accountability over what the textual critic provides. Yeah, the, then it becomes an expressive form. An right? art form. It's an art form built for man's interpretation. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's interpretative dance. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that Olympics thing where they, with the streamers with the and the banners. The ribbon, the ribbon dancing? Yes, the yeah. ribbon dancing. Yeah. And how do you grade that? How uh, do you know if, like, is that I don't. a 10? That usually, that's when the TV comes <laughs> off for me, but... And, you know, the second thing they have to say is that the true text has been lost. It's never been preserved. And they are only just now recovering it. Mm. You know, okay, whatever. Uh, you know, I think the originals are irrelevant compared to identifying Scripture. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ever lost. I can see how the honey ran. I can trace God's hand through history. So I know the evidence. I can look at the alternatives. I believe in the supernatural. I believe in God's overriding providence. Um, and I believe God's given us his word in English where we have the certainty. We do have the certainty of the words of truth. And I don't believe it will be in any of the other translations which wipe out the, that phrase. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Wow. Okay, so we, we're ending where we began, which is great. That's a good place to be. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for being with us. we got one more episode where we're going to go a little bit further into this idea that there are clear doctrinal discrepancies between versions that have major implications for the working out of our faith. Doctrine always affects the way that we live and understand and engage God. And so we're going to talk about some of those discrepancies in the next episode, but I want to thank you for all you've given us here today. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, appreciate it. And we want to thank you as well for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. And maybe you've been listening into this episode and you're, the, the gears in your mind are turning and you're beginning to ask yourself questions about why you use the translation of the Bible that you use and, and why you use that particular English translation. And, and so if you've got questions like that, we want to invite you to, to listen to more episodes. We've got one more episode in this series coming. It's a three-part series. Uh, but if you've got questions that you need answered, we would ask that you would go to lfbi.org and consider enrolling for LFBI, and in particular, the manuscript evidence class. If this is a subject or a topic that you have interest in, we want to invite you to be a part of that class. But with that said, we're so thankful that you joined us for this episode, and we hope to see you again next week for the last installment on this series on the King James. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.